Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today I'm going to start off with a new website, theintrepidcookie.net. The article here is Blind Cooking Tips. At the end of 2015, when I lost a good deal of my vision, first only in the right eye and eventually in both eyes, the idea of navigating around my little apartment kitchen was very daunting. I've always been a pretty adaptive cook in the kitchen and didn't possess more than the basics for cooking tools. A set of knives, pots and pans, plastic cutting boards, pasta strainer, can opener, and things like that. I relied upon my eyes and my knife skills I had gained throughout my years of cooking in various kitchens to suffice. I thoroughly enjoyed the longer process of and challenge of chopping, slicing, chiffoning, mincing, and zesting things by hand. During the worst point in my, of my vision loss, both eyes had absolutely no acuity, and I could only see hand movement at something like four feet away. This visual field in terms of clarity and acuity is the same as someone taking a dab of Vaseline and smearing it in both eyes so that everything is fuzzy, or like opening your eyes underwater in a very murky pond. I had to learn to utilize the residual vision that I still retained and apply it to normal everyday tasks. For myself, even though my light perception and color perception is now diminished from what it was, I still had enough to figure out little things to help make things easier for myself. Below are some things that I have done and added to my own kitchen to assist myself in the cooking process. These are in no particular order, but I wanted to share them with you. Number one, since I have a pretty good contrast vision of light against dark, I started trying to incorporate that with my most basic tools, my hands. I will either get a dark red or French tip manicure. You can totally have a friend of yours come do nails as well. So I was able to distinguish the tips of my fingers more clearly against the kitchen tool or ingredient or the distance from the edge of the pan I was using at the time. Number two, investing in an electric knife sharpener. Truly a dull knife is hazardous to even an experienced, fully sighted cook, and it is undoubtedly dangerous to those with diminished vision. A trick that I have always used, this is number three, I picked up from Rachel Ray, which was to always have a garbage bowl in the kitchen. I've since downgraded the garbage bowl to a plain garbage bag, typically just a grocery bag, as to make it um, much easier to clean up. I've always been a fastidiously neat cook, but my OCD in the kitchen definitely heightened considerably after vision loss. Number four, I have some sticky buttons that I had my husband put onto the apartment stove to help me tell what temperature the burners were and at what temperature the ovens were. In our house, I have a gas range, so it's easier to gauge the height of the flame because there is movement of the flame. My memorization skills are better as well. Number five, there are assistive measuring cups and scales for the blind, which talk to you. I have personally not utilized these yet, though I am pretty interested in getting the talking scale as I delve into the world of baking more thoroughly to ensure things are the same size for even bake times. Number six, embracing different kitchen tools. I have things like a grater, a zester, and a kitchen aid to help me do things in a speedier and more efficient way than I used to. I still haven't gotten a food processor, but I think that this will be an extremely useful tool. Number seven, big cutting boards. 
These are super helpful as when you are chopping things, it's easy to lose a few carrot pieces in the process. With this, a bench scraper or dough cutter is also very helpful for ascertaining where those food particles go if you don't want to use your hands to scoop extra smelly things like garlic. Number eight, utilizing the oven and baking roasting more. Before, I had a, ten a tendency to only use the stovetop for cooking dishes as it's quick, convenient, and that's where the majority of my experience lay from my years behind the lines in kitchens. However, with the oven, I am able to step away and take breaks as something delicious cooks with minimal fuss. This is especially helpful in summertime as my fatigue kicks up when the weather is warmer. Number nine, timers are essential to me now. I love setting a timer with my phone or you can buy a talking timer or memorize the timer features on your microwave, those helpful little buttons that I mentioned above. This way I can concentrate on the next step of something without constantly having to monitor it. Number 10, having an insanely organized kitchen. Now that I have the space, my spices are meticulously organized by region, bottle height, and savor versus sweet. It's a system that works for me, and I urge you to organize things in a way that is easy to memorize. Everything has a home and almost immediately goes back to its home when not in use. In my fridge, I have things in specific places, so I always know where they are. Sometimes friends have been surprised I can direct them to the exact spot from across the room if we are cooking together and they ask where something is. I'm not going to lie, I get very upset if things are moved around in my kitchen as I know where everything is right now. Number 11. I've become a lot more prone to poking meats and things with clean fingers if I am cooking on the stovetop to tell if they're done. I do this with eggs too if they are sunny side up. Before, I could just use the kitchen tool to poke and visually ascertain if it was done, as in professional kitchens, touching the food with bare hands tends to be a no-no health inspection issue. At home, it's usually food just for myself and my husband, so I'm a little more relaxed about touching the food. Number 12, I definitely listen and smell my food more intently than I used to as it cooks, sautés, sizzles, bakes, or mixes. Number 13, Mise en place. This is one of the biggest adjustments I have made in my cooking at home. Mise en place is a French term that means having all of your ingredients cut, chopped, minced, and measured out and prepared before you actually start the cooking process. Because now it takes longer to cut and prepare my ingredients, I choose to have them ready to go rather than accidentally slice a finger off as I try to rush to mince that last clove of garlic to add to something before the other veggies burn. Having everything prepared ahead of time allows me to focus and fully give my attention to whatever task I'm performing at the time. Number 14, utilizing measuring spoons and cups more. Before vision loss, I could simply eyeball spices and liquids when adding them to dishes. Now I am much more careful to measure out spices, especially if I'm experimenting with something new, to have a clear idea of what is being used. I'm also converting my recipe writing to reflect this as it will be helpful for others to know exactly how much I'm using. If I get a scale that talks to me in grams, chances are my recipe writing will reflect this as well. Number 15. This may seem silly, but now that I have a gas range with an open flame, I am much more careful to keep my hair up while cooking. No one, most of myself, wants my hair to catch fire. I don't think that's 
<laughs> silly at all. I think it seems like a great safety tip. Um, I had a friend email me some tips that she's learned through her own experiences from vision loss and through the blind school that she attended. I'm organizing the tips from the email she sent me, but the words are all her own. She did not wish to be identified for personal reasons, and I completely respect that. And I hope you find her tips as helpful and insightful as I have. So we've got another 13 tips here. Number one, when doing some grocery shopping for favorite foods and you don't have a helper, you can ask for a personal shopper at the store. I have to do this when I have no one to help. I can't see anything on the shelves and it's free at all stores. Number two, I have bump dots on my stove and microwave so that I know what temperature I am cooking at. They have fancy temperature Bluetooth readings that you can view on your phone. There's an app. There are many gadgets for the blind. Number three, I was taught labeling techniques at the blind school as to label items in the pantry, fridge, and cabinets and drawers. The only problem is that it has to be put back in its proper area or you end up pulling your hair out. I have tried labeling the edge, but it's tricky because the labels fall off. Labeling containers that have flour and sugar are helpful, but you can also taste and smell most items. Number four, the most important part of preparing food is the planning. To have all of the helpful gadgets and tools, at school we were told to get measuring cups and spoons in all different sizes and to either label them or learn the feel of each size depending on which vision level it can be large print or braille. Number five, I have also have a cutting board that is black on one side and white on the other. It helps with contrast while chopping. Number six, I also have a chef-grade cut-resistant glove. Depending upon the comfort level, the knife can be tricky. They recommend a serrated knife for more control. Number seven, I also use a slap chopper for dicing and mincing my onions and garlic. Number eight, when filling the measuring cups with liquid, I do it over a sink to not spill on the counter. That's a good one. Number nine, the main thing is to have all of your prep done before starting the cooking process so that you can focus on cooking. When you don't have sight, you have to depend upon your sense of feel, smell, and taste. So she's re reiterating what was said before. Number 10, you can tell when a piece of meat is done by the firmness. Sense of touch is critical unless using a thermometer. Number 11, I have my husband check the fridge each week to check for spoiled food. The worst thing is biting into spoiled food as I have done it before. Yuck. Number 12, if I'm using a new recipe, I record my instructions and ingredients on my Victor. Any recording device will do. And number 13, I used to stress about cooking, but I find if I'm using a timer and some tips from above, I'm okay. Well, thank you, intrepidcookie.net. Those were great, great tips. Next, we're going to go to smittenkitchen.com and have a recipe for Moroccan spiced spaghetti squash. I keep promising you all some quick, easy recipes, but sharing instead a mousse that requires at least five bowls and an electric mixer that must be washed down no less than three times, a quiche that has at least three different components, cauliflower that demands you cook each ingredient separately and from scratch donut recipe that entails reducing, rolling, freezing, frying, and dipping. I have no doubt that you're standing there in front of your monitor, hands on hips, demanding answers. Except I don't have any logic or rationale that will explain 
I choose to use my limited three minutes of time to make elaborate recipes and not say dinner. I only have this one piece offering today. There's a caveat, however. This is a ridiculously quick recipe if you have a microwave. We used to, but don't any longer, so it still took over an hour, but it's an hour that requires only a few minutes of hands-on time. Still, it is my favorite preparation of spaghetti squash, not only because it's delicious, but because it approaches winter squash in my favorite way, by waking it up. I've never had a taste for squash recipes with cream or sugar or piles of cinnamon. I think the natural sweetness of squash is best contrasted with bolder ingredients like garlic and tahini, jalapenos, olives and preserved lemons, chili lime vinaigrettes, hearty beans and ham, or cayenne-dusted caramelized onions. I think you get the picture. But this is the simplest one yet, while also being one of the first winter squash recipes that I made, and one of the first times I noted how gourmet always raised the bar, even on simple recipes. I say especially on simple recipes, it's such a shame they won't be around to do this any longer, and an even bigger shame that their publishers didn't see or couldn't find the viability in moving a brand in their prime online. But I'm glad I at least have their archives or speedy gems like these for those increasingly frequent times when the real fun is outside the kitchen. Moroccan Spiced Spaghetti Squash, adapted from Gourmet. Cooking spaghetti squash in your microwave is super quick, but roasting it isn't much more work. I've made it both ways and it works equally well. This works great as a side, but I tried something different this time and bulked it up with canned chickpeas, drained and rinsed. We had it with couscous, but if I had thought of it sooner, I would also be great with some sautéed greens. This serves four. You need one spaghetti squash, about three and a half to four pounds, one half stick or four tablespoons of unsalted butter cut into pieces, two garlic cloves minced, one teaspoon of ground cumin, one half teaspoon of ground coriander, one eighth teaspoon of cayenne, three quarter teaspoons of salt, two tablespoons of chopped fresh cilantro or flat leaf parsley if you're cilantro averse. To cook the squash in a microwave, you're gonna pierce the squash about an inch deep all over with a small sharp knife to prevent bursting. Cook in an 800 watt microwave on high power, 100%, for six to seven minutes. Turn the squash over and microwave until the squash feels slightly soft when pressed, about eight to 10 minutes more. And then you're gonna cool the squash for five minutes. To roast the squash, there's two methods. If you'd like to roast the squash whole, pierce it all over with a sharp knife to prevent bursting and bake it in a 375 degree oven for one hour. If you're good with a big sharp knife, you can save some time by cutting the squash in half lengthwise, scooping out the seeds and roasting the halves face down in an oil, oiled baking pan for about 40 minutes in a 375 degree oven. Meanwhile, melt the butter in a small saucepan over medium heat, add the garlic and cook, stirring until it's barely golden. Stir in spices and salt and remove from the heat. If you have microwaved or roasted your squash whole, carefully have it lengthwise. It will give off a lot of steam and remove the seeds. Carefully have the squash lengthwise. This is a repeated, <laughs> repeated, um, ingredient, or, uh, 
instructions here. It will give off steam and remove and discard the seeds. Working over a bowl, scrape the squash flesh with a fork, loosening and separating the strands as you remove it from the skin and tossed with spice butter and cilantro. I just read it how it is, folks. <laughs> I love that recipe. Sounds really good. Next, we are going to have a recipe for baked eggs and chive biscuits and Bloody Marys. Today, I have failed you as a food, food blogger. I'm not proud. I cooked and cooked. We and our loved ones ate like kings. There was not a single recipe that shouldn't be archived and returned to. And yet, in the whirl of things, we forgot to pick up the camera. My, hang, my head hangs in shame. You get no photographic evidence of the shredded hash browns, chive biscuits, egregious amount of thick-cut maple-cured bacon, baked almond orange French toast, insanely spicy Bloody Marys, plain yogurt I've flavored myself with real vanilla and just a pinch of sugar. You're just going to have to trust me that it was grand. Since we've been together, Alex and I have twice taken our mothers and those dudes they married for Mother's Day brunches. I am not going to say that we haven't had good meals, but we've never had a great one. No matter who cooks, and really, it's always a short order cook. The chef with his or her name on the menu isn't called in six hours early just to flip eggs. But in the end, most brunch menus look exactly alike with the prices jacked up for the holiday you got to question the sanity of a $50 overcooked egg. I don't overcook my eggs, do you? And yet I'll pay someone else to. And to serve bacon, that's never quite crisp. My bacon is always crisp. It was a post on the Gourmet Editor's blog by Ann Patchett that finally knocked some sanity back in my head. Among her seven reasons that food always tastes better at home, she talks about never needing a reservation. Food always served at the correct temperature. Meals are always perfectly portioned for her current level of hunger. I don't overeat at home. No one ever steps out of the pantry and asks me if I want dessert when I'm already perfectly full. And knowing everything that went into her food, even if it's a saturated fat, but this was my favorite. Quote, frankly, I'm a good cook. I'm my own personal chef. I know exactly what I like to eat, and that's how I fix my food every single time. I almost never let myself down. Most of the time I'm in a restaurant, I am struck by the fact that the food is better at home, end quote. And with that, I couldn't rationalize another fabric napkin-wrapped basket of stale scones and overly sweet muffins, because if there's anything I can't abide, it's a chalky scone, not when a flawless recipe is available at the touch of your fingertips on smittenkitchen.com. So yes, on to the food already. You already know about the three varieties of miniature muffins, corn, raspberry, lemon, and banana with chocolate chips, but I think I've now found my go-to biscuit recipe. Even better, I plopped them on their baking sheet and stored them in the freezer for a day until I was ready to bake them and create less work for myself this morning. Am I brilliant, right? Okay, anyway. Bacon is bacon, but I do love the thick stuff thick cut stuff that you can have them pack at the whole meat foods meat counter it always gets noticed i shred a russet potato or two and a half an onion in the food processor squeeze them out very very well and fry them in a big patty to make hash browns my absolute favorite bedding for a poached egg i've already told you about my baked french toast but i have to add that the glug of triple sec <laughs> 
with a zest of half an orange and a splash of almond extract combination is my favorite yet. I soaked it only for an hour or so and used one ounce or 1% milk in lieu of whole and you'd never have known the difference. Finally, the baked eggs. If you are tired of the same old poached, baked, fried scramble mix, then you definitely need a dose of this. You create thickest and most lush bed of sautéed spinach, mushrooms, and onions with a splash of cream. Dig and fill egg-sized wells all over and bake it in the oven until the whites are solid before finishing it off with Parmesan. And you literally scoop, scoop it onto your plate and never look back. I know that I haven't. Don't be put off by this unseemly picture. There is great deliciousness within. Here is the recipe for the Bloody Mary from Fox and Hounds Tavern in St. Louis. You'll need five ounces of tomato juice, one and a half ounces of vodka, juice of two lime wedges, one half teaspoon of finely grated fresh horseradish, two or three dashes of Worcestershire sauce, three or four drops of Tabasco sauce, pinch of salt, pinch of celery salt, and a pinch, a small pinch of cayenne pepper. You'll also need some ice and you're gonna combine all of the ingredients in a pint glass and pour the drink back and forth between the pint glass and the cocktail shaker four times and then pour the Bloody Mary into a highball glass over ice. Here's the recipe for baked eggs with spinach and mushrooms. You're gonna need 10 ounces of baby spinach leaves, one quarter cup of finely chopped onion, one garlic clove, finely chopped, two tablespoons of unsalted butter, five ounces of mushroom, sliced uh, thin, and that, that'll be about two cups, one third cup of heavy cream, one quarter teaspoon salt, one quarter teaspoon black pepper, one eighth teaspoon of freshly grated nutmeg, four large eggs, two tablespoons of finely grated Parmesan. You're gonna put the oven rack in the upper third of the oven and preheat the oven to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Bring one half inch of water to boil in a 10 to 12 inch oven-proof heavy skillet, not cast iron, and then add half of the spinach and cook, turning with tongs until wilted, about 30 seconds. You're gonna add the remaining spinach and wilt it in the same manner, then cook covered over moderately high heat until the spinach is tender about two minutes. Drain in a colander and cool under cold running water. Gently squeeze handfuls of spinach to remove as much liquid as possible and then coarsely chop. You're gonna wipe your skillet dry and then cook onion and garlic in butter over moderately low heat, stirring until softened two to three minutes. Add the mushrooms and increase the heat to moderate then cook, stirring until the mushrooms are softened and have exuded liquid about three minutes. Stir in cream, salt, pepper, nutmeg, and chopped spinach and bring to a simmer. Remove the skillet from the heat and make four large indentations in the spinach mixture. Break an egg into each indentation and bake uncovered until the egg whites are set but the yolks are still runny about seven to 10 minutes. You're going to lightly season the eggs with salt and pepper, and then sprinkle with cheese. Aha! Buttermilk chive biscuits, adapted from Dot's Diner, Boulder, Colorado. This makes 12 servings. You'll need 3 cups of all-purpose flour, 
one teaspoon of sugar. Original recipe calls for two tablespoons. That was way too much. Four teaspoons of baking powder. One teaspoon of salt. One teaspoon of baking soda. Three quarters cups or one and a half sticks of chilled unsalted butter cut into one quarter inch pieces. One quarter cup of minced fresh chives and one cup of buttermilk. Preheat your oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. You're going to whisk the flour, sugar, baking powder, salt, and baking soda in a large bowl to blend. Using your fingertips, you're going to rub three-quarter cups of chilled butter into the dry ingredients until the mixture resembles coarse meal. Stir in the chives and then add buttermilk and stir until evenly moistened. Using one-quarter cup of dough for each biscuit, Drop the biscuits onto the baking sheet, spacing about two inches apart, and bake until the biscuits are golden brown on top, about 15 minutes. Cool slightly and then serve warm. I am a sucker for the round, bumpy-edged biscuit shape, so I rolled it out on a well-floured counter and then cut them in with a three-inch biscuit cutter. Take care to handle the dough as little as humanly possible so as not to warm or soften it too much. Good tips, Deb. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.